You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello. Good to see you guys. We hardly ever cross paths anymore. I know. I know. You guys have both changed since the last time I saw you. Oh, is it us who's changed? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. You look different. You feel different. Uh, Who's on the show this week? This week, I talked to Katie Weaver. Katie Weaver writes for GQ. She, uh wrote for Gawker for a long time. She's funny. She's a funny writer. She writes hilarious things. And I've actually wanted to have her on for a really long time, and I finally pulled it off. It's hard to write funny. That's and, one of the hardest things to find. People can write funny. Yeah. Th- there was a lot of uh, moments in this interview where I was like, how do you be funny? <laughs> that is a terrible question. <laughs> do you think I'm funny, though? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. no, no, no. no. Uh, I've been working on joke. Uh, yeah, it was pretty awkward. If uh, you're awkward in person but better in written communication, start a newsletter. No better place to do it than with MailChimp. Lots and lots of businesses do it. How many? Uh, 14 million people 14 use MailChimp. 14 million and counting. I have a fun uh, MailChimp teaser for you guys. Mm. Don't tease me. I, I, <laughs> this is exactly what I'm going to do. We, uh, it's not going to happen right now, but soon we have a very exciting thing to announce with our friends at MailChimp. Yeah. Stay tuned. Oh, we do. Yeah. I like it. Eight or nine shows from now, this is going to come back full circle. It's going <laughs> to blow your mind. Do re- you guys remember the teaser episode? <laughs> I also have a plug. Oh, wow. I haven't plugged in a while. Plug it. There's a new Atavis Magazine story. It's by David Woolman. It's called The Wreck. It's about a shipwreck and a very dramatic rescue and then the uh, hunt for the gold that was lost in that shipwreck. Wow. That story is great. And it was featured on uh, the website, longform.org. So here is Max... Linsky, Katie Weaver. Hi, Katie Weaver. Hi. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm very excited that you are here. Here's the thing I thought maybe we could start with. I think your leads are good. Oh, thank you. I think they're really good, in fact. That's so nice to hear. And it feels like you should start by talking about leads if you're going to talk about leads. Okay. So I was thinking maybe we could start. Let's do it. There, I've got a couple written down here, but there's one that I remember reading and turning to Aaron, who I was sitting next to, and like hitting his shoulder and saying, dude, and this is what it was, uh, Kim Kardashian West's boob is so soft, it makes velvet feel like splinters. (laughs) It's honest to God true. It was the (laughs) softest thing I've ever touched. 
you gotta just you gotta like help me understand how you get from like sitting you were at dinner with her i was at dinner we were in a restaurant in the middle of a restaurant how do you get from there to that lead in gq so this was for GQ's Love, Sex, and Madness issue, and it was my second meeting with Kim. Um, I'd been at her house the day before, and prior to this, I'd sat in on a meeting for her app, Kim Kardashian West app for iPhone. Uh, Which and, is a insano bajillion-dollar app. Yeah, super, super profitable for her. Um, and then we were wrapping up the day at dinner, and I realized I hadn't asked her any of what I considered to be, like, sexy questions, and I... I don't want to say I knew her at this point, but I had spent enough time in her company that I wasn't a total stranger coming up. So I decided to just ask her to describe what her boobs feel like. <laughs> Not because I thought whatever she said would be terribly interesting, but I just wanted to see how she would handle the question, and maybe she'd say something great. And to my shock, she said, so soft. You want to feel? And then immediately started to like open her shirt for me. to. F- I think she's actually wearing maybe a leotard. And I was just like, yep. And I was eating a hot dog at the time, so I had to wipe mustard off my hands. And she just pulled her leotard up and kind of guided my hand in, and I just felt that boob. And it was, even as I was feeling it, I was like, you will never touch something this soft again. (laughs) It was unbelievably soft. Wait, so that was your plan? You had, like, the boob question in your pocket? Um, Yeah, because I thought, like, I always think, well, how would I describe what my boobs feel like? And I would probably say, like, a balloon filled with pudding. And I just wanted to see if she would say, like, a water balloon or what's in that balloon? Is she not even going to say they feel like a balloon? Um, it's just a funny question to totally throw people off and see how they're going to handle it. And I think she handled it beautifully. It was just the two of you at dinner? It was just the two of us at There's dinner. There's not, like, a publicist sitting there? No, no, no. Um, that would not have flown. But, yeah, it was just us. And Wait, we were... that would not have flown, like, in Katie rules? Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't think GQ would allow that. That would be crazy to have a publicist sitting there. And also, Kim is an adult mother of two. She can handle me asking (laughs) questions about her boobs. Because, you know, she can also say, like, I don't want to answer that. I will write that down that she said that. Right. But she's savvy. She she was a really good interview because she knows that she has to make it interesting. Kim's whole job is being herself. So if herself is not worth reading about, no one's going to pay her to, like, be herself anymore but with someone who's like that uh professionally herself Mm -hmm. how do you make it interesting i was really i had so many questions about her life and just the logistics of being kim because she is one of the most famous women in the world and for no immediately discernible reason i think once you delve into her a little bit then you can totally see why it works and why she's able to monetize herself so thoroughly. But one of the things that made me really curious about her, I didn't actually watch the Kardashians until I got this assignment, but my friends who I consider my smartest friends, like doctor friends, lawyer friends, all watch the Kardashian. These are all women. Um, All watch the Kardashians. So I said, okay, if my smartest friends think this show (laughs) is worth watching, it has to be worth watching in some way. It's not totally mindless, pointless entertainment because these brilliant women are choosing to spend their valuable downtime just staring at Kim and her sisters, you know, flitting through life in Calabasas. And you kind of like, I feel like you got at that pretty high up in that story, which is like something has changed and she went from uh, this kind of like 
joke celebrity to someone who's revered almost. Yeah. At this point, I think you were on the wrong side of history to (laughs) not like Kim Kardashian or to just dismiss her out of hand, I think, is a bad look on you. Um, Can we go back to that lead for a second, though? Like, so you're sitting in this restaurant, Kim Kardashian West, and she's like, you can touch it. And I guess I'm trying to figure out, like, how do you write these things? Do you know in the exact moment, like, all right, that's it? Or is it like you're flying back on the plane and you're like, that was really wild? When it happened, I was like, this is going well. Very excited (laughs) to be doing this. And before I interview anyone, we have a really great resource at Cottonass, which is the library, and you can ask them to pull uh, people's clips. So I had already read many, many, many thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of words about Kim. And I didn't remember anyone else touching her boobs. I was like, that's good. She hasn't done that before. Uh, and then I actually literally did write it on the plane on the way back. I knew it was something that I would want to hit on in the story. wasn't going to let that hit the cutting room floor. And then I think as the plane was landing, I was like, oh, I've been asleep most of this plane ride. I should start to write something. So I wrote that. That lead is actually the very first thing I wrote for the story. It ran almost exactly as I wrote it, touching down. I think I had one other kind of descriptor that my editor cut. I wish I could remember what it was. Did, maybe did I talk about Dawn in that lead? I think I said it yeah. was like, oh. Yeah, it's like, like clutching like Gosh, well, what got cut? handfuls there, of like the pink Dawn yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was something else like even more insane that got cut <laughs> um, because it was just too long at that point. The lead can't be 6,000 words <laughs> about me comparing her boob to other things. Um, but yeah, and I, I'm working on a story right now and I'm actually thinking like, oh, what is the lead going to be? I have an idea of what I might do, but I, I don't tend to write in order. It was unusual for me to do it that way. I just kind of write down what I think are the most interesting things that happen. And then in a panic, I go back later and try to connect them to one another and sort of arrange them into an order that makes sense to read. How important are those leads to you? Very, very important. And they're always super like that. Like they make me want to turn to whoever I'm sitting with and like slap them on the shoulder and read it to them. That's so nice to hear. I definitely want to grab people up top because if you start with a whimper. (laughs) I'm sorry, but you just said grab people up top. I want to grab everyone up top in every way possible. (laughs) Um, Help me understand a little bit more. Like, because they're also funny. They're almost always jokes. I think I'm setting the tone with the jokes up top. If I were writing about something very serious. I probably wouldn't try to open with a joke. But yeah, I just want I want people to know what they're in for so I guess they aren't disappointed later. It's like if you are into this lead, you should keep reading and if this turns you off immediately, if this girl on girl action turns you off immediately, then you can stop now cuz it's going to be more of the same. And I also I have a post-it note on my desk. I can't remember the numbers now even though I look at it every single day. Um that shows the percentage of readers you lose online only as your piece gets longer. And it's something like 90 to 100% will read the first thousand words maybe if they click the story. And then every little bit longer it gets, the number starts getting like halved. So then by the time you hit 2,000 words, only 50% are reading it. So I think it's important to be really good up top. Uh, And then you kind of fudge it in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying you should do that not because you want to make sure that everyone will read to the end, but because like you're rationally assuming you're going to lose most of them. So you might as well just put the best shit up up top. You got to grab them up top. (laughs) Um, And I will say I have much more trouble with endings than beginnings. 
Because huh. I, I tend to write the last line last. I guess that's the only thing I usually do in order because I hate doing it. And it's always like, oh, God, how are we going to get out of this mess? Because, you, yeah, because you like you can't find a way out of the maze or because you're not totally sure like what you think yet. No, I usually know at that point what I think. But another thing is just word counts, which are very real in print. And I never had at previous jobs. Um so sometimes it's hard to be like, okay, this is like we have to end big because this is the ending. You know, I can't kind of trail on and say maybe everything I want to say. I can't share every little detail, but I, I'll save that for my friends, I guess. Um, but you can't begin with a whimper and you can't end with a whimper. Can we talk about some of those previous jobs? Yeah, sure. What was the first one? The first writing job I had, well, I, I worked at a Marshalls uh, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I don't recommend that. And... Uh, the first writing job I had was right after I graduated from college. I was still living in Philadelphia, where I went to school. And I started writing for free for The Hairpin because I liked reading it. And that's when Edith Zimmerman was running it. Uh, so I did that, and I wrote a handful of things for them. And then just from doing that, I started to get emails from people offering to pay me for work, which was so exciting. And while I was at the Hairpin, I think I actually owe my entire career to Hamilton Nolan from Gawker because he emailed Edith Zimmerman and said that they were looking to hire night writers. Did she know anyone? And she asked me if I wanted her to give my name. And I said, oh, yes, please. And then I applied to become a night writer at Gawker. They had us audition. And then if you pass the audition, you got to have the gig, which was like three days a week or something. I don't really remember. And I got that job. My first day doing that was for pay. The audition was not paid. It was Valentine's Day, the year after I graduated. And then I pretty quickly got bumped up to being a staff writer, I think because Maureen O'Connor left and mm -hmm. they needed a girl. Um, so were they, you still working in Philly or were you in New York? I was point? still in Philly. I was remote. But then when I got bumped up to staff writer, AJ Delario was running it at the time and he told me I had to move to New York. Um, which someone later told me I did not have to do. But I was already in New York at that point. I would have loved to stay in Philly. So I moved to New York uh, over the summer. And then I was at Gawker until I left and started at GQ. It was my first real job out of college. And I would also say that maybe GQ is my first real job out of college. <laughs> Gawker doesn't I, count? I had health insurance there, but it definitely, the vibe is quite different. I can imagine that. I talked to some people who worked with you and... Multiple people described you as the nice person at Gawker. Huh, who said that? I can't tell you that. But that's they don't what they know said. me very well. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't jive? <laughs> no, well, I think they maybe mean I am nice. Um, but actually, AJ once told me that I shouldn't write about, like, sad things. Why? Because it wasn't my interest. Um, I didn't have as much fun doing it, and I think I'm at my best writing when I'm having fun. And we kind of had people on staff who were could, like, grab the news at that point. So I didn't have to be the one. Did you try that kind of stuff and just feel like it wasn't for you? Or when I was a night writer, I had to do it because you were in charge of the site with very little guidance. Um, they just hand you all the passwords for everything. You're like, okay, bye. See you tomorrow. <laughs> um, from, I think, like... 5 p.m. to midnight. The idea was I was supposed to have five posts up, but I'm kind of a slow writer sometimes, so I would often be finishing at three. The important thing, three in the morning, the important thing was just to get up five posts. Um, but so you had to just cover anything that happened. And then I guess when I had a little more freedom to write whatever, AJ was like, you can stop covering like mass shootings because that's obviously not what you're good at. We have people who can handle that. 
What about your like mass shooting coverage? It was it wasn't bad, but it's more they're paying me X amount of money and they probably want me to be doing the thing I'm best at. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you feel like at that point you knew what you were best at? Yeah, I mean, no one loves covering mass shootings, but like my boyfriend has just a much better eye for news than I do, and he he really loves the rush of having to get something up really fast. I'm a very um, kind of finicky writer, so a breaking news story will take me a long time to write because mm-hmm. I want it to hit just the right now. <laughs> uh, and it's like, you know, I shouldn't be doing that. Play to your skills. So what were your skills? Like when you started as a Stafford Eric Cocker, what, what were you good at? I just liked writing funny things. I'm, like I liked weird news that was not time sensitive. I remember there was a, a bear in New Jersey that escaped and was just kind of wandering around New Jersey. It wasn't really hurting anyone. And uh, Was that the bear that was like lying in people's hammocks? That sounds like something he would have done. <laughs> I just remember the write-up of him from the local news stations was kind of like, oh, you know, the bear's out. And unfortunately, afternoon kindergarten has been canceled. Kids can't go outside. And it wasn't really heavy on details, but that's the kind of story I like. A weird story with a lot of room for me to make up anything. <laughs> you make bear jokes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, that's my sweet spot right there. <laughs> um, and I always loved reading celebrity profiles at Gawker. You couldn't do them because mm-hmm. everyone would just say no or, like, the site wasn't big enough. Um, and when I came to GQ, they asked what do you want to do? And I said, celebrity profiles. And they have absolutely held up their end of the bargain on that. (laughs) Like the first big one they had me do was Justin Bieber. (laughs) Oh my God, you guys really heard my request, huh? Had you done, like, first of all, I think it's pretty interesting that you like actively wanted to do celebrity profiles. I just love reading them. Why? I think for the same reason I like The Real Housewives. I love studying people and figuring out what they're like and just seeing them be in the world. I I think that's so interesting. I was actually thinking about this the other day, and I read a while ago that the reason we as humans enjoy slow motion is because it gives your brain enough time to really take in all the detail of what's happening, and that's kind of soothing and rewarding to us. And I sort of feel like celebrity profiles do the same thing. It's like you can really dive deep into a person and look at them from a bunch of different angles and form an opinion about them. Um, it's It can be rude to do that with people you know personally, but a celebrity profile inherently invites you to do that. Do you do that with people you know personally too? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> had you done them before you got to GQ? Had you like had you interviewed someone as famous as Justin Bieber before you went to interview Justin Bieber? Well, I, I did interview my very first... <laughs> gig for GQ. Um, I was, I hadn't officially started yet, but I believe I had accepted the job. And I think they, I don't know if this is true, but my impression was that they gave this to me to prove kind of like, we're serious, we'll let you do cool things. It might have just been that like no one had time to do it and they (laughs) needed someone. Um, But I got to talk to Larry David and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Just had breakfast with them. It, It wasn't anything long, but that was terrifying. That has probably been the scariest of everything I've done. Why? Because I think they're both brilliant, so funny, so smart. Comedians have a reputation for being hard to interview. Um, I think I was helped by the fact that they were friends and could kind of talk to each other. One-on-one, them being my first interview separately would have been like... But that like, so literally like your first 
sit down interview was the first thing you ever did for GQ. Yeah. And it was Larry David and Julia Louis Dreyfus. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds super intense. I tried not to let them know. And it was breakfast? <laughs> it was breakfast. Did you wake up well, at like three in the morning? It was horrible. Um, <laughs> so I flew out really last minute and GQ was like, okay, and like, we'll get your car in LA, a rental car to drive. Obviously the company will pay for it. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. I can drive. I have a driver's license. I do, but I hate driving and I had never driven in LA. And boy, did that not go well. <laughs> um, I left extremely early because like, I, I don't know where to park. I needed to buy a tape recorder at Target. I couldn't figure out how to get into Target because you had to like drive underground. To par- it was horrible. I, I, I must have left like two hours <laughs> and still gotten there basically right on time. <laughs> and so what do you do? Like, how do you act like you've been there before? Well, maybe they could tell I hadn't been there before. I, you know what? Honestly, part of it was that I was like, nothing will be as scary as the drive here. Like, I don't have to drive while I'm doing this. This is something I used to do. In, I'm still alive, when, so house money. When I would take um, like French classes and Spanish classes, you you know how you have to do um kind of oral exams with the teacher and it'll be like, well, tell me about, you know, a trip to the beach. And you just have to do that in French. And so then if I had to talk to someone for something or give a presentation in another class, I would kind of practice it in like French or Spanish in my head. And then I would think the best thing is I can do it in English. I can show up and I don't have to know French at all. <laughs> and it, it's sort of that same thing. It's like you imagine the worst it'll be. I don't have to interview them in Spanish. I get to do it in English. That's a point for me. That's my native tongue. And I also always, always think, you know, the day before at like 11 p.m., no matter what, by this time tomorrow, I will have done it. Everything can go catastrophically wrong. It will be done. And that's really calming to me. How much do you prepare for this? A lot. Well, the main thing I do is um, reading all the clip files. And so that I would ask for maybe all the stories, minimum 1,500 words, cover stories going back to like 2000 or whenever. Larry and Julia have had very long careers, so there was a ton to read. Um, but it's like, you know what, it takes six hours to fly to LA. I got time to read. So I do that. I And are you doing that to make sure you don't go back over like well-trod material? Yeah. that's. I want to get a sense of their lives and their careers, especially if it's someone whose work I don't know as well. Um, I, I would say I knew both their work pretty well. Uh, and I, I mainly want to see what they have already said so that if they start talking about that, I know to wrap up that question really fast because I have limited time here. You can't be telling me something you've already told five people. And when you went out for that first one, like, did you ask anyone at the magazine for, like, tips or anything? I just, like, I I'm, I, I think did. I'm just sitting in yeah. my own, like, terror field <laughs> of what that must have been like. I did. Well, actually, I believe this was one of my editors said... Just remember, this is the worst part of their job. They've been asked everything before. They don't want to talk to you. They're bored. And, like, go from there. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? That's fine to remember. Yeah, yeah. it's the worst part of their job. <laughs> I, I'm nervous, but it's also the worst part of their job. Right, right, right. So it's neither like the, of us is loving it. <laughs> it's like the stakes are as high as possible for you and pretty low for them. <laughs> That's good to remember. Like, as long as you go in knowing that, you won't be caught off guard if they're not happy to talk to you. Um, can we go back to the Gawker stuff just for a second? Yeah, sure. Because I'm, I'm interested in how you find your voice. Because mm-hmm. it seems kind of like that's what happened. And maybe it's that conversation with AJ where he's like, mass shootings aren't your thing. And uh, I should say that was like a one-off comment that I'm sure he forgets telling me 
that I was I was so desperate at that point for any amount of guidance that I would take anything as gospel. And I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Did you get guidance at Gawker? Um, I would say the other thing that AJ might not remember saying that really sticks with me uh, is no exclamation points. And I think that always makes your writing stronger because I definitely early on had a tendency to use them. And even now, I will sometimes write something with exclamation points and then do like a control F and go back and really consider sense by sense. Does this need an exclamation point or can we do a period? And you can almost always change it for a period. And I would recommend that people do that. It makes it better. Do you believe in exclamation points in emails? Uh, I try to keep my usage of them to a minimum, but I will. I know I put one in my email to you like, see you there. (laughs) And I tried it with a see you there, but it seemed a little cold. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I feel like we've all moved into it just like anything but exclamation points. Mm-hmm. I've completely embraced that philosophy. It's not good. I, I do no more than one, definitely. And I would love to do zero. <laughs> you aspire to do zero? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the like question that I'm like dancing around yeah, well, is it seems to me like there's a lot of people who came through Gawker, come, come through other places, who basically like aspire to write funny things, right? And you did a lot better with that than most folks did. And so I'm trying to figure out why or how. I think part of it is that I got lucky and the commenters early on liked me. And I actually think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we had to audition. So we had a post saying, you know, hi, I'm Katie. I'm going to be one of the auditioners, da, da, da. And other times when new writers would get added to the site, it would just, the comments would be like, well, who's this? What's this byline? I've never seen this before. Any new person around here. So I think that I was really helped by having an intro, something as simple as that. And I think that really helped us. I was always grateful that the commoners got to, you know, just introduce the new kid. Don't suddenly throw him in front of the class and say, hey, I'm in charge here. Did you start getting bored at Gawker? Hmm. I, I kind of felt like I had maxed out on what I was going to learn there. And I definitely did learn things there. I I wasn't a writer before I started at Gawker, and then I left and got a job at GQ. So that was, you know, something must have worked. Um, but yeah, I didn't really feel like I was growing anymore. I thought I'd kind of hit the upper limits of what I would be able to do. Um, and I was never going to get to meet all my favorite celebrities and ask some questions at Gawker. Did you uh, get offered other stuff before GQ? Yes. Um, So I left Gawker around the time there was that post with the actually Conde Nast executive outing him. And then the whole site was in turmoil. I'd been thinking about leaving before that. And then Nick Denton said, the site's going to get nicer. And if you want to leave now, you'll get... It was framed as a buyout, but I think it was really the standard package everyone got when they left Gawker. It was just like, now it's guaranteed and who knows what the future will bring. So I left, um, and I announced that I was leaving on Twitter because I went into like get the warrant out if anyone's trying to hire me, uh, and then I eventually narrowed it down to three places: another magazine and a website. And I decided I've been on web only for a while. I'd really like to try. I was uh, intrigued by the editing process. I mm-hmm. want to see what it's like to be edited by someone who does print work and just see the change of pace. And I'm really happy with where I ended up. What's been hard, aside from uh, having to drive in Los Angeles, what's been hard about the GQ job? Hmm. 
Well, I don't want to say nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> it's really, come very easy. I'm really to trying me. to think. There's, I think, a, you know, you're on a bigger stage now, so the room for error is much greater. So that's really nerve-wracking, but at the same time, I do feel like I'm in good hands. Mm-hmm. So if something goes catastrophically wrong, it's like, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, knock on wood, so far, I don't think anything's gone catastrophically wrong. Um, the office environment is is different, but in a way that I, I like. Uh, Gawker, and they've since changed offices, so I'm speaking about an office that also no longer exists, just like the website. But it was kind of a, it was like open office plan. It was always dark as a cave. There was always music playing. And that drove me crazy. I, I need it to be quiet when I write. And the GQ offices are filled with light. They're very sunny. There's not music playing. Mm-hmm. It just feels a little bit more like a traditional office. And I know this is kind of a like finicky, nerdy thing to say, but I prefer a little bit more of a traditional office. I majored in linguistics at school, so I have kind of like a rigid background, like go to the library and learn linguistics. I I wasn't like out on the beat, patrolling the streets, like where's my next story? I was like, let me memorize this table of symbols quietly alone. (laughs) Um, And that's just how I work best. I get, if there's music playing, I'm distracted by it. I don't like there to be any sound, so... (laughs) The hardest thing has been the how nice it is. <laughs> yeah. So it's just you. The hardest been thing has left... been I love it and it's great. <laughs> uh, when you were studying linguistics, did you think this is what you're going to be doing? No. Um, I what know. do you even do when you like get a degree in linguistics? You become a professor of linguistics. You go work in the CIA or but something. But there's not. Well, I could have. I could have done that too, in theory. Um, I would have loved to be a professor of linguistics. There's not a huge demand for them, <laughs> and it was. It was a very small major, and there were people who, like, would spend their free time inventing a language, and I wasn't doing that. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, if we only have one pr- professorship open, you should get it. You invented a language. Um, I'm just here to have a good time. <laughs> I really didn't know what I would be doing. I was very nervous about that. I feel really lucky that I started to get paid for writing pretty early on and then realized, well... Maybe I can like earn enough doing this, and it helped that I was living in Philadelphia, which is a lot cheaper than New York. Yeah, yeah. You have twenty dollars. You're the king of Philadelphia. <laughs> They'll let you live in the mayor's and drink house. for days. <laughs> uh, so in that beautiful office where no one will talk to you, and you can do whatever you want in your quiet space. Mm-hmm. Um, People talk, but out of respectful volume. I understand. And they're not so, yelling over them. You're basically saying like <laughs> I work with a bunch of grownups in a grown-up office. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a certain type of temperament that would succeed at Cocker, and it is someone who kind of lives for chaos. And I just don't. And, you know, I would say for me, it felt more chaotic than I would have liked. And it was also really stressful to be churning out five posts a day. I wasn't yeah. doing that by the end of my career there. I had a little more wiggle room to write longer things, which I always liked doing. And where is that at now? Like, what's your rhythm? How many big pieces do you need to do a year? I don't know how many I need to do. I, I, I'm i just going to try to do them on like, whatever pace I am until they say, well, this is a problem. <laughs> You're not doing it. Someone comes over in a very uh, hushed tone at your quiet office. And, and, and I would like, say, I, Katie, we have a problem. Thank you for your volume. Thank you for respecting me. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I always try to be working on something. I'm working on a story right now that I'm really excited about that will come out late spring. Uh, and it's actually something that when I 
was applying to work at GQ, they had me write a memo of a bunch of stories I'd like to do. And this is one of the things that I put on the memo, and now I get to do it. Oh, I want to know what it is so bad. So you're just kind of like doing them at the pace you're going to do them? Yeah, I, I, I'm always trying to do more web writing. I will say maybe the hardest thing has been learning how to juggle the print and web calendars because the schedules are so different. And I would like to be doing more web things, but then it's like, oh, I have to do this print thing. And the print deadlines are really rigid because mm-hmm. things have to get sent to the printer by X date. Right. Um, whereas web, there's always a little bit more wiggle room. So I try to be working on a few stories concurrently. And then once this big print thing is filed, I think I'll have a little time to try to do some more for the web. But I'm, I'm still figuring out. I've only been there a year and a half. How could I possibly be expected to know what my job is? Do you think, um, I don't want to necessarily classify what you do as like humor writing. Do you think like the, like the way that people are being funny on the internet is changing? Hmm. I think in some ways it's getting, we're all getting more similar. Um, I really like memes. I love to see a meme make its rounds. Um, and even if the meme is just, you know, a weird phrasing of a sentence, I love to see that light up Twitter and everyone's doing it. That's fun. It's like we're all, you know, hanging out together riffing. Um, so I think Twitter has maybe made it a little more homogenous. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think you would have gotten the GQ job without Twitter? I don't want to say definitely not, but maybe not. Because it was a really easy way for me to put out there that I was looking for work. It was how my work was often disseminated was via Twitter. I think if an editor at GQ had been really closely reading Gawker, which maybe some of them were, then they might have known, well, this is someone who people seem to like, or I like this person's work. But I would, Twitter for sure made it easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that. What comes next? What kind of work do you want to be doing? I really like what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I don't know what comes next. I want to I wanna hang at GQ for a while and work with this brilliant team of writers and editors who, who I really respect, who I think are great at their jobs. I still feel like I'm learning from them. Um, what do you think you're getting better at? I think my process is just a little bit cleaner now. Um, it's, I also just like knowing how a magazine gets made. It's okay. Like this, you have to turn in this draft by this date. And then this is when the copy editing comes. Like I, I like deadlines and things like that. I think I'm thinking more now about structure overall, especially the constraints of something in print. You really only have this many words, so you can't waste words because, right. you know, the period's here and we're not paying for more pages. Um, so it's made me definitely more thoughtful about that. I think I choose my words a little bit more carefully now because on the internet you can just run wild. Um, although, as I said, according to my post-it, people will very quickly stop reading. <laughs> right. Get them up top. Gotta grab them up top. Um, so I think, I think that's changing for the better. I don't, I don't think anything is changing for the worse. That would be horrible. Can I ask you a question that definitely has like in some inherent shitty bias of which I am embarrassed, but I'm asking you anyway. Yeah. Uh, Can't wait. Yeah, it's, this is going to be great. Um, I, I mean, I guess my question is, I wonder whether there's a finite amount of of energy that you can spend doing 
funny stuff. At some point, do you feel like you need to go cover like a mass shooting or something? Or is this a sustaining force? I will do this for as long as I can get paid to do it. And then when people stop paying me to do it, that'll be time to reevaluate. Um, I think I will not be fatigued by it. Mm-hmm. If readers are, I'll cross that bridge and we come to it. I really like my job. I like what I do. I love making that money. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm also very grateful and shocked that I can get paid to write because I really did not have a writing background at yeah. all until I started just emailing Edith Zimmerman my thoughts. <laughs> I feel like if there's any lesson that has come out over the uh, however many episodes of this show we've done, it's like, just send that email to someone. <laughs> I, I feel like on the page you are a very, like, happy kind of like fun person part of the reason that i want to talk to you i think is just like you seem like really fun to hang out with like you're fun to hang out with on the page and i wonder is that just how you are is that how you've always been um i would describe myself as very i I have a, a pretty low resting heart rate and i'm i'm not unflappable but i'm not easily flapped so i think i generally am have a pretty good disposition, pretty happy. I also, this is funny. So I grew up uh, in, I went to a, a not great high school, a bad high school in, a, I guess it's a poor district. It's kind of hard to tell. It's definitely a poor district, but I don't know the amount of funding it gets because it's one of those schools that is doing so poorly that they kind of throw money at it, but nothing works. Um, this is the Harrisburg Public School District. And even though I didn't learn a whole lot in high school, I had a lot of fun. Um, And I think it taught me to be outgoing and to make the best of, like, a bad situation. It definitely was a school where, like, we – everyone's riffing on everyone. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of – there's just constant joking going on. And it it was just a fun place to be, although we definitely did not learn a goddamn thing. Like, (laughs) horrible. And that that is something that made me really nervous going to college was I didn't feel like I had a foundation. And Did you have to play catch-up in college? I always have been a big reader. um, So I was okay in that respect. And I could, you know, talk to people. But, like, I, I didn't have math skills. The math part of the SAT was so hard for me. My mom was my SAT tutor, and it would just be Every night after dinner for hours, she would, like, give me practice math problems because I wasn't learning it in school. And it was miserable. I hated it. This was, like, my my junior year. I would be taking these practice SATs every night. And we couldn't afford, like, a real tutor or someone who knows how to, you know, teach to the test. We weren't doing any of that. So I feel like I was disadvantaged in that way. My science was really bad. Um, the reading was kind of the only thing I could do on my own. But even now, when I talk to people who went to either good schools or, like, okay schools. They have just a a foundation of, like, literature that I don't have. I'm still playing catch-up for sure in that respect. Like, like they read Jane Austen. That's like, we didn't read Jane Austen. That's not (laughs) something we would do. I I mean, our school is, like, a lot. I think the graduation rate is hovering around 50%. Wow. It it was a tough school. And I don't want to make it sound like everyone there, you know, is a failure or anything, but it is a school where a guy in my grade who actually has the same birthday as I do, so there's a really clear parallel, is going to become a dentist. And that's like he's getting written up in the newspaper because someone from my high school is going to be a dentist. That's amazing. 
<laughs> what do they think about old Katie Weaver, the GQ writer? I don't know if they read GQ. I, mean, I haven't gotten a write-up. But, but I, I'm really proud of him for being a dentist, too. But it does, as proud of him as, as I am, it makes me think, like, are there how many schools is someone just going to dental school, like, front page news? It might not have been on the front page, but it was for sure in there. Just, and you know... That's something that I'm I'm really sensitive to is the fact that I still feel like to a certain extent I'm playing catch up. And since I didn't have any formal writing training, I'm kind of making it up as I go along every time, you know? Do you feel connected to that place still? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. My parents are both still there. Um, it was a predominantly black high school. I would say about 50, maybe a little over black, and then big... Latino population, then probably Asian and then white, like like two percent white maybe. And I'm biracial. My dad's black. My mom's white. I I look pretty white. Uh, although mixed people can usually tell that I'm not. Mixed people and black people are the ones who will ask like, "What are you mixed with?" <laughs> white people don't ask. Um, and so at that school, it was like, "Oh, you know, Katie's black. She counts whatever." But I I could name the white people on my hand from that school. But yeah, I. I especially now that I'm in media, which tends to be a very white industry, although people are, I think, trying to hire more diversely. I'm very aware of, like, how many black people are in a room? Mm -hmm. How many people who don't have blue eyes are in a room? Even that. Like, sometimes I look around and it's like, everyone here has blue eyes. That's crazy. I I didn't know people with blue eyes growing up. I literally didn't know them. I had maybe one friend who had blue eyes. Um, so that's something that I'm aware of. And I think also being mixed, people sometimes ask, well, what do you identify with more? And it's always, for me at least, identify more with the group I'm not with. So with white people, I feel black. With black people, I feel white. And I identify most closely maybe with just other mixed people, regardless of what they're mixed with. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense? Yeah. I don't remember how we got here. Yes, if I, I feel connected to Harrisburg, PA, I sure do. Um, you write about yourself a lot. Like you're in all your stories on some <laughs> level. And it's interesting to hear you say that you feel like you're like playing catch up. And I wonder if you see any gap between who you are in your real life uh-huh. and who that person is on the page. No, no gap at all. Um, no, I really don't. And I don't always like when writers are in the stories and sometimes I think like maybe I should do this less it just it feels it comes really naturally to me Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that maybe makes me I don't know this is true but maybe makes me a good writer interviewer is that because I feel like I'm playing catch up I'm not afraid to ask questions that seem dumb because I think you always run the risk of looking really dumb if you're like oh yeah 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 and then later it's revealed that you don't know I rather would just ask right up top like I don't I don't know what you're talking about what is this and like I I interviewed Patrick Stewart and I was like what is Star Trek (laughs) and I was like I have not seen the series so how would you just explain it and he (laughs) he he recited um, the like intro and he's like well it's all there in the introduction <laughs> and, was, and we kind of broke it down and I was like okay <laughs> so yeah I mean I'm, I'm being paid to go and ask questions and try to find out things that are at least halfway interesting and then write about them so you don't you don't get any information by pretending you're smart and you already know everything I think that's like uh, another definition of confidence <laughs> 
That's going to play really well on the radio, that silent pose I just did. That, that pose you did was fit. It was a confident pose. <laughs> you made a confident pose. I think people should be confident. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I probably did it to some extent during this, but I always try to remember, you know, you don't have to tell people what you're not good at. You don't have to remind them of things that you're not doing well or what your weak points are. Don't apologize for things, like, immediately. Um, always give a little less information than they need. <laughs> Don't overshare is a big one, I think. Where does that confidence come from? Hmm. I think part of it is just how I was raised by my parents, and my grandmother lived 15 minutes away, so I saw her all the time. And she's a very big, Katie, walk in there with your shoulders back. And she could be describing, like, any situation. It's like, walk in to meet Justin Bieber with your shoulders back, or, like, walk into you know, a restaurant with your shoulders back. Uh, and so I would just always hear nan- my Nana is very, very confident. And I think part of it is also coming up through that high school where there was a lot of riffing and people taking digs and you have to be able to throw it back really fast and know that when those people are taking digs, it's because they like you. It's when no one's saying anything. That's when you have to... <laughs> when no one cares enough to riff with you, that's a bummer. Do you think that the people that you work with know that you feel like you're still playing catch-up? Um, some of them might. The ones I'm closer to might. But I don't really know. It just depends. I mean, when we talk about high schools, that's when it comes up because it's like, I was valedictorian in my high school, no big deal. But the year that happened, we were ranked the worst high school in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but I was... So it's kind of... It's but I was the like Val. Kind of like a back end compliment. I was the Val. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, ooh... And and I do, I mean, I'm proud that having done that, I have a job at GQ that feels really nice. You're definitely going to get written up on the front page. I don't, no offense, I don't think they listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a dentist. <laughs> and I think it's great as a dentist. I'm really proud of him. I'm so happy. That's the thing, like, coming from that school, if you have, like, a normal job, it's like, oh, my God, you did it. Started from the bottom, now you're a dentist. Are you proud of yourself? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm, this job feels less, uh, less important than dentistry. Like less, I think this is something that if there were, you know, a worldwide catastrophe if Armageddon happened, we probably don't need my funny thoughts on celebs. I would rather have someone who could like take out a rotten tooth. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself. My Nana's very proud of me. She always tells me that. My parents tell me that. That's nice. Katie, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Mickey Capper. Our intern was Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our friends at MailChimp for continuing to support the show. And thanks to Katie Weaver. Go read that piece that's coming out in May. She told me what it is uh, after the show. See you next week. I take back everything I said. For the record. This you, is all off the record. You can't do that. <laughs> Damn. You know the tricks. You know the journalism tricks. Can't take it off the record after the fact. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Socks brought to you by Team Milk... 
Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.